Welcome to the Core Mission Podcast. We're spending the summer at Core Mission's annual Bible Festival, Revive. Coming up over the next few weeks, we have talks covering topics as varied as knife crime, evangelism, and tech tactics for families. But today, we're going to hear one of our main session talks from Kevin DeYoung on justification. Kevin was preaching on Isaiah 53, 4-6 and 10-12, to as well as Romans 4, 23-25. If you have your Bibles open to Isaiah 53, you will notice that there are four stanzas. Likely in your Bible, there is a slight space between each of these stanzas. The first starts at the beginning of the chapter, or more likely at the end of chapter 52, verse 13. In my Bible, there's a heading, he was pierced for our transgressions. And the first stanza goes through verse 3. You then notice that small space in the second stanza in verses four through six, another space, then the third stanza, verses seven through nine, and the fourth stanza, verses 10 through 12. There is a problem in Isaiah 53 that builds through each of these first three stanzas and is not finally answered until the fourth stanza. The problem is this, how can it be that one so righteous should suffer so despicably, and that for the sake of the wicked. Verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? This message about the suffering servant is scarcely to be believed. How can it be one so righteous should be so brutally punished. So there is a contrast that is building throughout Isaiah 53. On the one hand are sinners, and on the other, the righteous suffering servant. We have on the one hand the utter sinfulness of God's people, and notice throughout the passage Isaiah does not shy away from talking about sin and speaking of it in bold language. We tend to repackage sin. We know instinctively people find even the word sin to be offensive. Everyone knows that the world is not as it's supposed to be, and I've never met someone who tells me they're perfect. If I try to share the gospel, they'll say, well, I, I, I know I'm not perfect. But we have all sorts of euphemisms for speaking of sin. We write it off as just biological misfiring or we blame it on our education or on our parents. Or we say perhaps it's just a, a growth edge, a learning curve, or brokenness. And there's something to that, but brokenness itself does not fully describe what sin is. Notice here the language that sounds almost harsh to our ears. Transgressions in the ESV in verse 5 and 8. Transgressors in verse 12. He speaks of our iniquities three times, verses 5, 6, and 11. He speaks of the oppression of his people in verse 8. And notice it is not the oppression that we suffer, but rather here the oppression that we mete out upon the suffering servant. In other words, Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, uses these strong words. Verse 9, wicked. Verse 10, guilt. The picture is not a flattering one. 
God's people, people like us, are depicted as selfish, lawless, foolish sinners. It's our sin. And it cannot be written off as just some sort of violation of our own sense of right and wrong. Our current president, or I suppose my current president, not yours, has said that he has had no reason to repent of sin. Our previous president, when asked to define sin, said sin is whatever is out of line with his own values. Sin here is what is out of line with God and his word. There is a vertical dimension to sin, which we must never erase or forget. Remember David, as he sins against Bathsheba, he sins against Joab, he sins against Uriah the Hittite, he sins against his people. There's almost no one that he has not sinned against. And yet he says in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned. Because ultimately, all of that horizontal sin was an affront and an offense to a holy God. We are not just out of line with our own values, but God's law. We cannot crowdsource our commandments. I saw that several years ago. There was an article. Two atheists decided that they were going to crowdsource 10 new commandments and try to take a poll and try to get suggestions from others and have 10 new commandments for a new day. And there were things that you might expect. Take care of the environment. Don't judge other people. They're full of a lot of ought, things you ought to do, care for the poor. And then interestingly, number nine was, uh, and there is no one right way to live. Although the other nine were telling you all sorts of ways that you ought to live. You can't make this up by public opinion polls. Did you see the story? It happened here, and I heard about it over there a few years ago when some, some ministry or, or uh, department of the government was christening and developing a new polar research vessel for the British government. Do you know of this? And to crowdsource the name, bad idea. And thinking that maybe it'll be Shackelford or something very regal, and, and in what... I consider to be the most British thing of all British things. Bodie McBoatface. Bodie McBoatface. That's why we sought our independence. <laughs> and I think then they said, well, we're going to name it after uh, the Attenboroughs or something. But I still saw this week, they still named Bodie McBoat. Do not base your life on public opinion. You cannot crowdsource your commandments. This is not just a violation of societal norms. It is a violation of God's holy law. They are transgressors and sinners. And opposite that, we have the Lord's servant. Verse 9 tells us this man did no violence, no deceit in his mouth. Now, there may have been good men and women in the Old Testament who suffered. Job was a righteous example in all the earth, but Isaiah is saying something more. The suffering servant had done nothing wrong. No violence, not in his heart, not in his actions, not ever. No deceitful words, no lustful thoughts, which makes his suffering so unbelievable. And the torrent of anguish Upon the servant keeps building and building. 
His appearance was marred beyond human semblance, verse 14 of chapter 52. 53.3, he was despised, rejected. Verse 4, he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He was pierced, crushed, wounded, oppressed, cut off, killed, died, buried. How can this be that one so righteous would be so brutally punished and that for the sake of the wicked? Perhaps it's some mistake, some cruel accident, some profound misfortune. After all, God's people suffer all the time. They face injustice, wrongly accused, have to put up with things. Maybe this is just one of those sad, twisted tales, man's inhumanity to man. But no, something deeper is going on. For this servant suffers willingly. He is not a victim of happenstance. He voluntarily carries our sorrows. John 10, 18 will say, no one takes his life away. He lays it down of his own accord. So do not picture the Lord Jesus going to death, kicking, flailing, bemoaning his inescapable fate. Yes, he asked the Lord that he would remove this cup from him, and yet not my will, but yours be done. Verse 7 in Isaiah says, he does not open his mouth. He endures the affliction willingly, silently. Do not feel sorry for Jesus. As Jesus approaches the cross and there are people weeping for him, Jesus was so unsentimental. He said to the women who are ex expressing their grief at his impending death, he says to them, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and the destruction that is coming. I fear sometimes that so much of Christian affection is mere sentimentality. Oh, we feel so sorry for Jesus. Isaiah 53 is not meant for a sentimental pity of the Lord Jesus. He did not die so we could look upon him and say, oh, how I feel sorry for him. No, he took upon the death freely. Do you notice in verses six and seven, both sinners and the suffering servant are compared to sheep. We are like sheep in that we wander and go astray. The servant is like a sheep in that he approaches his shearing. He approaches his slaughter without a word. He knows what awaits him. He embraces what has been determined for him. So no, do not think that this servant is a hapless victim. He is a willing participant in his own punishment. How, how can this be? How can it be that one so righteous, so brutally punished, slaughtered, would suffer this for the sake of the wicked. Perhaps for the good he might die, but for the wicked. This is the problem that is mounting in the first three stanzas of Isaiah 53. That's why he says, who will believe our report? You are not going to believe this. The fourth stanza answers the question, verse 10. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The Lord has put him to grief. So there's the answer to the question that has been mounting. How can it be that this righteous servant would suffer 
because it was the Lord's will. Now, if you're honest, you may think to yourself, well, that makes things worse. I mean, perhaps by an accident, the innocent would suffer, but, but now you're saying that it was the Lord's will to crush him? How is that good news? Well, brothers and sisters, that is the very heart of our good news. Because it was the Lord's will, not an accident, the Lord's will to crush him, we can behold the glory of our triune God in planning and procuring our salvation. No, no, we must not think that the Father punished the Son as a hapless victim of some cosmic child abuse. No, the Son went to the cross freely, willingly. The Son did not appease an angry God in the sense that the Father is the divine bad cop to the Son's divine good cop. No, the Father sent the Son. And the Son, in union of purpose with the Father and the Holy Spirit, agreed to be the agent by which this salvation plan would be procured. This was a kind of God-forsakenness, but do not think this was some some rift in the eternal, internal dynamics of the Trinity. The good news is that the Father did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, and that the Son drank the bitter cup of God's wrath for our sakes. It was the Lord's will to crush him. It means that in the mystery of divine redemption, we must not think, so here we're getting into the mystery of the cross. We must not think that the cross changed God's mind to love us. As if prior to Golgotha, God did not love us, and then that happened and God said, now I do love you. No, Good Friday did not happen so God could love us. Good Friday happened because he already loved those whom he had chosen in Christ, already set his affections upon us, that we would be his treasured possessions. We were not some diamond in the rough. He said, you're so valuable, you're so worth it, I'm going to send my son. He had chosen freely to set his affections, to love us, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don't think God's love only is executed on the other side of the cross. God's love is what led to the cross. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Because it was the Lord's will to crush him, we can have full satisfaction that full satisfaction has been made. Think about it. If it was not the Lord's will, then perhaps God might have some second thoughts. Well, my son died, but it wasn't my plan. It wasn't my doing. I'm not sure that that really is enough. But if it was God's plan from all eternity as Acts 4 and Acts 2 tells us, executed in time, then we can be confident. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, verse 11 says. If the cross is something other than divine judgment upon the divine Son of God, if, 
if Good Friday is not the eternal redemptive plan of God executed fully and finally on a hill outside of Jerusalem, if what we have been singing about all weekend is something other than the Lord's will to crush his own servant, then we cannot be confident that our sins are fully and finally and forever forgiven. We can't know that it really has been enough. Isaiah 53.10 answers the problem that has been mounting in verses 1 through 9. How can the righteous servant suffer for the wicked? The answer, it is the Lord's will to crush him. But that leads to another question and to our New Testament passage. How then, if that is the Lord's will, how can God be just in condemning the righteous and setting free the ungodly? That's the question that Paul is facing in Romans 3 and Romans 4. And just think for a moment how different that is than the question that we tend to ask. See, the Bible helps us not only with the right answers, but the right questions. We tend to think, and the people you share the gospel with, how can a good God send people to hell? And that's a, a, that's a hard question. That's an existential question. But the question that was uppermost in Paul's mind is just the opposite. How can a good God justify the ungodly? How can that happen? God's all purity, all holiness. How can he let vile rebels go free? And the degree to which we don't feel the weight of that is probably the measure of how little some of us, not all, but some of us have really suffered from the ungodly. When you've seen real ungodliness, real injustice, and I don't mean somebody, you know, swerves in front of you when you're driving or you have to wait a long time for customer service or your steak comes back and you said, I wanted this rare mooing, come on. Not those sort of injust real profound injustice. Everything in you screams out. This must be made right. You cannot let this person go innocently free. And yet that's precisely what God does for these sinners. How? How can God be just and a justifier of the ungodly? That's what he answers in Romans 3, and then he makes even clearer in Romans 4. We can be justified because by faith we share in Christ's benefits, even as our sins have been imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness imputed to us. So turn over to Romans 4 in the passage that was read, because Paul says something that may seem curious to us in verse 25. He says that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We tend to think, no, the, the cross is about justification. Why does Paul say here the empty tomb? He was raised for our justification. What is the connection between the tomb being empty and you and I as sinners being justified? Isn't it the cross? What, what, how does the empty tomb connect? 
Romans 1.4 says Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection speaks. The resurrection declares something about God's salvation and about God's Son. In chapter 1, it declares that He is the Son of God. Here, it declares something about His work. It tells us that justice has been satisfied and sinners who belong to Christ have been justified. That's what it means when it says Christ was raised for our justification. So think of it this way. I have eight, eight kids. Why eight? I didn't want nine. I hope not. We'll see. Check back in a couple of years. Uh, suppose seven of these kids, now the youngest is six months, so he has a hard time getting into real top-level mischief, but in a few years, I'm sure he will. Seven of the children uh, ride their bikes to the grocery store. We have one around the corner from us. And when they're in the store, they steal some fireworks. Some of the ones you had last night, and they come back to the to the home when mom and dad aren't around or don't think they're around. They're there in the, in the garden exploding things, things they stole, setting things on fire, blowing things up, and not being very bright children. The parents are actually in the house. And we come out and we see the seven children who have participated in this crime, in this offense, and they're absolutely terrified. But there was one son who did not participate in their crime, a good lad. He was up in his room doing sine and cosine and tangents and sort of things, reading Shakespeare. And then the older brother steps forward, just as the younger siblings are about to get what is their due. And even though he had no part in their crime, he offers to be punished in their place. And so mom and dad send him to his room. So you are going to stay there. And you are not going to have supper. You're not going to have dessert. And you are not going to come out until we tell you that you are free to come out. As long as the older brother is in his room, the, the seven wayward children are a bit nervous. Is this actually going to work? this little switcheroo. This is not a small thing. We stole things and we set them on fire and blew things up in the yard. As long as the room is occupied, they are not confident that parental justice has been satisfied. But as soon as the door opens and coming forth is big brother and mom and dad say, Son, you are free to go. Now the empty room indicates the satisfaction of parental justice. It did work. The debt has been paid for. And so you see the connection. The empty tomb on Easter morning signals the vindication of Christ from the curse of the law and the declaration of free pardon for all those who belong to Christ. 
the switcheroo worked. Here's what I want you to see in closing. We are not saved by the removal of justice, but by the satisfaction of justice. I think many Christians are misunderstood on this point. It's easy to think that the cross is where love conquered holiness, and that's a sense. There's a verse that mercy triumphs over judgment. But it's tempting to think we're saved because God loves us so much, he just decided, you know what? Your sin, forget about it. Not a big deal. He woke up one morning, he was having a very good God day. He said, you know what? I love you so much, I wanna have mercy on you. Your sin, I'm gonna not count it against you. I'm gonna wipe it away. That is not how justification works. We are not justified because God's mercy obliterated God's justice. We are justified because in divine mercy, God sent his son to satisfy divine justice. The resurrection then is the loud declaration that there is nothing left to pay. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now that'll preach. Not possible. Jesus could not possibly stay dead. Why? Because God is more powerful than death and the devil. Well, that's true, but there's another reason. The grave could not hold the Son of God because it had no claim on him. The wages of sin is what? Death. So when sin is paid for, there is no obligation to pay the wages of those sin. That's why Peter's preaching at Pentecost says it was not possible. Death had no claim on the Lord Jesus. Here's how Charles Hodge puts it, theologian from the 19th century. Our sins were the judicial ground of the sufferings of Christ so that they were a satisfaction of justice and his righteousness is the judicial ground of our acceptance with God. And then listen to this, so that our pardon is an act of justice. Do not think justification is a legal fiction. God just waving a wand and saying, you know what, the law, obligations, I don't care about it. Just wave a wand and you muggles can go free. Now, God would be unjust if he did not act, even in our justification, according to his righteousness. It would be a denial of his name. And so, Paul is answering the question, how can then God be the just and the justifier of the ungodly? And the answer is that his justice was not set aside, it was satisfied. So that now, for those who belong to Christ, it would be a denial of God's name and his character if your sins were not forgiven. Most of you have heard 1 John 1, 9 before. If we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just? No, 
hold on a second. Wouldn't you expect it to say he's faithful and loving? He's faithful and merciful. He's faithful and gracious. All of that's true. But there it says he's faithful and just. I believe many of us have not begun to grasp how good the good news is, how secure our salvation is, just how completely and unalterably justified we are through faith in Christ. God did not set aside the law in judging us. He fulfilled it. Christ bore the curse of the law so that in him we become the righteousness of God, not a righteousness infused, that was the Roman Catholic understanding and still is, but a righteousness imputed. That means reckoned to your account, credited. It's the difference between holding a 20-pound note, here I have it in my possession, and it being wired to your bank account, credited to belong to you. So by faith, blessing and mercy and favor are what we deserve because Christ's righteousness imputed to us, reckoned, credited. You could describe the whole plan of salvation as three imputations. Adam's sin imputed to us, our sin imputed to Christ, and Christ's righteousness imputed to all of those who belong to him by faith. That is the great exchange. So do not miss this. Justice is shot through the entire plan of redemption. People go to hell because God is just, and people go to heaven because God is just. Because our sins were counted in Christ, he deserved to die. And because his life and death are counted to us, we deserve to live. You're not justified Brothers and sisters, those of you who are in Christ, you are not justified because God waved a magic wand and decided to overlook your faults. He has not overlooked the tiniest speck of any one of your faults. He demands justice for every one of your iniquities, every one of my transgressions. You think to yourself in moment of shame, well, what I deserve for all the times I've gone there on the internet is Shame. What I deserve for the way I speak to my children is punishment. What I deserve for all the things that I have done, even in the past week, is utter condemnation. You're right. Those sins deserve that punishment. God demands justice for every lustful look, every proud thought, every spiteful tongue. He demands justice for all of it. He will not overlook one tiny speck of it. But here's the good news. The resurrection of the crucified Son of God tells us all the demands of justice have been met. If you think that there is yet a penalty for you to pay for your sins if you are in Christ, then you do not understand the miracle of the resurrection itself. Do you see what good news we have? Why it's so essential that we believe not in the resurrection as some story about good triumphing out of evil. Oh, nonsense. No, a real story about a real man, flesh and blood, really in history, who really died and he really rose and the tomb is really empty so that everyone who belongs to Christ has all of their iniquities really and truly and forever forgiven. 
It's not a story about how suffering can be sanctified or a story of how Jesus suffered so we can suffer with humanity. No, Good Friday and Easter, it's not mainly a story about a good man who died a sad death and he came back to life so we can all have hope. The cross is about the atoning sacrifice for sins. And the resurrection is the loud declaration that Jesus is enough. Enough to atone for your sins. Enough to reconcile you to God. Enough to present you holy in God's presence. Enough to free you from the curse of the law. Enough to assure you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Enough to finally and fully set you free from the penalty and one day, ultimately, the power of sin. If you are in Christ, it will be counted to us as righteousness when we believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, how we need to hear the old, old story again and again to know this wonderful cross, this mighty cross, and the glory of an empty tomb that you have done for us that we could never do for ourselves, and you have done it to the uttermost, not in the removal of your justice, but the satisfaction of it. And so that in Christ, we can plead that you give us what we deserve, not in ourselves, but according to your Son. And in that merciful exchange, we rest. And in that great transaction, we serve and go out and evangelize. And in that justification, we worship now and forever. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Commission Podcast. If you've missed the previous talks on this series, make sure you check out your feed for talks on justification and propitiation, or check out the archive at commission.org slash podcast.